Welcome to On Air with Tatiana D. The hottest motivation show in your suburbs. Do you feel the daily routine is catching up? Are you a champion of your game? And you need an extra dose of positivity? Let's find out together how to live a happier life without stress or negativity. This is a story-driven podcast where we talk about motivation, inspiration, and success in almost our post-COVID reality. So, Kevin, hello. And I'm hello. very happy to have you here. I'm very glad to be here, Tatiana. From what I've learned a little bit about you, you have quite incredible life journey, living with MS and even jumping from the airplane, from what I understand. Yeah, I, I I suppose I my life is is turned out as it has because one I for most of my life I I generally said yes to whatever possibilities were in front of me and one of the ways my MS most profoundly affected me was that I eventually got to a point where I wasn't and I was withdrawing from my life. So that would be one side of it. And the other side is luck of the draw. You know, some, some unusual things have happened to me over the years. When you're saying that it was a point when you were withdrawing, so inadvertently, that was the point when you actually did make a choice. You had the choice, either keep mm -hmm. on going to succumbing to the bad circumstances and uh, blaming everything and everyone why you're not that lucky like somebody else or mm -hmm. you took that bull of, a Ill, of an illness by the horn and turned it your way the way you needed to yeah I, look at I, you now I, I i i think that for me part of it had to be i had to give up on my expectations for my life and I had become so caught up in my view of what I wanted my life to be. And it had become so different from that view. And of mm -hmm. course, I know better. <laughs> I got all the education in the world about people. I, I know better, but, but I was still doing that. And I had to come to a place where I could see myself as I was now and and not how I wanted myself to be or how I expected myself to be. I had to become more humble in my approach to the world. And I had to redevelop a beginner's mindset and say, all right, life has knocked me down a long way and I'm going to have to rebuild myself and I can't take any shortcuts here. I have to go back to square zero. Mm -hmm. And I have to be willing to fail and, exactly. and be okay with the failure. 
and fail, fail, and pick myself up and try it again, and and start at really, really, really small things, embarrassingly small things, and and rebuild myself with more kindness. That I would say sounds like a key of everything to rebuild yourself with kindness. Yeah, it really was because we're in our culture now, we're a lot more conscious of what it takes to to have good relationships with other people. And and we talk about that a lot. But I would say, you know, as a social and behavioral scientist, as someone who's studied people professionally for 30 years now, that everything we think about building a good relationship with other people also applies to building a good relationship with ourselves. And, and I would invite everybody listening to just think for a second, how do you really treat yourself? And if somebody else treated you the way you treat yourself, would, would you, you like still it? be in a relationship with that person? Probably not. Exactly. And, and yet, and yet, we're smushed in this carcass with ourselves. We can't get away from ourselves. So if you are treating yourself so unkindly, it's no wonder you have an awful relationship with yourself. And with others. And with others, because it starts with you. Exactly. I always keep telling this to my children when they were growing up. I was telling them, if you want other people to love you, love yourself first. It is. And, and we, th we think we, when people say that, which is completely true, we, we tend to have this really superficial hallmark card kind of interpretation of <laughs> yes. what that means. Yes. And, and, I'm, and I'm here in Kansas City, the world headquarters of hallmark cards. I've been there many times <laughs> yes. at their corporate headquarters. So I know of which I speak. And my point is love, love is not just like on steroids. Like is about owning. It's about having something. I like it, so I want it in my life. Love is about giving. It's about a process. It's about acceptance. Love is a verb. And, and love is not easy. Love requires kindness and love requires grace because you have to love someone, even yourself, even if you don't live up to your own expectations. You still have to love yourself and treat yourself kindly. Mm -hmm. and, that, and, and that doesn't mean being easy on yourself all the time either. You can acknowledge your failures and you can say, I really tried and now I'm going to try it again, but I'm not going to beat myself up over about it. I just got an idea. Uh-oh. <laughs> Today we're talking, we're going to be talking more detailed about your life journey and a lot of other things. But what you're saying right now about loving oneself, 
I'd like to have another episode with you when we possibly would be talking about love, relationship, kindness to one another. So, you know, more of a philosophical and slash practical essence. Sure, sure. Yeah, I used to teach that class as a college professor and and I would love there's that. a whole chapter on that in my book. So, yeah, I'm completely down for it. Absolutely, absolutely. So now going a little bit back to the track, and I'm kind of all winging it. It's it's very interesting. I have a set of questions, but I decided, no, I'm winging it too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tell us how it all started. Tell us more about your education and uh, what took you from a zero to a hero. Okay. Well, one, I would never use the word hero for myself. I, <laughs> okay. I, I, that's 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 not a thing. Uh, I I and and that's one of those things that that if people call themselves a hero, or if they say they are a leader or they are a guru or all that, then that's something wrong there already. There's something wrong there. Yeah. So so, <laughs> I'm I'm just a guy who's who's like like so many other people who has faced some difficult circumstances and failed a lot at it, but on the balance, I'm, I'm doing about as well as I could expect and, and I'm, I'm still trying. So I think for people to understand uh, where I'm coming from, they probably wanna know three things about me. The first one is that I'm way overeducated. So I have a doctorate in sociology and psychology. I've spent the last three decades studying people. And specifically, I I specialize in research methods and data science. So in how we study people and how we build models to predict people. But I also have specialized in a research question, which is, why do some people succeed and others fail under difficult circumstances? Mm-hmm. And that leads us to the second thing people probably would be interested in about me. And that is, I live with multiple sclerosis. I, I first became symptomatic in 1989 as a young uh-huh. man in college. And it was misdiagnosed and undiagnosed for many years, which is pretty common with MS. And then finally, in 2002, I woke up one morning and I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. And I thought, that's kind of weird. And I thought I'd overdone my workout and pinched a nerve or something. So I didn't think much about it. And a few days later, it was back to normal. And then it was gone again. And then it was back. And then it was gone. And then it was other parts of my body. And then finally, one morning, I woke up and I could feel my right arm and my head. But the rest of my body disappeared. And at that point, my then wife said, I'm putting my foot down. You will go get this looked at. And so I did. And that uh, launched a comedy of medical errors. And a few months later, I ended up with a multiple sclerosis diagnosis. And they said, yeah, it's been in your system for a long time. So on the one hand, that, that explained a lot of weirdness that had come and gone in my life over the years. On the other hand, it's a grim diagnosis to get because Indeed. MS doesn't get better. You're, and, and a lot of people don't know what MS is. It's one of those that they've heard about, but yes. they don't really know 
what it's doing. Uh, most people think, well, it's one of those that puts you in a wheelchair, right? And well, yeah, it can happen, but that's not even the most common outcome nowadays. So what it is, is an autoimmune condition, which we didn't know when I was first diagnosed, mm -hmm. uh, but it's autoimmune is where your own immune system attacks the fatty myelin sheaths around the neurons in your brain and your spinal cord. And so in effect, it causes all kinds of damage and all kinds of scarring, and it causes your uh, central nervous system to short circuit. And so depending on where the damage is, that's the kind of symptoms that you can have. They can be physical, they can be cognitive, they can be emotional, any of that stuff. Because everything we do think, feel, say, hope passes through our CNS. So it's, 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 it's an ugly, vicious condition. And uh, I, I live with a list of over 30 symptoms that mostly come and go. There's some that are always with me. I'm always in pain, so chronic pain. I'm always fatigued, so chronic fatigue. I'm always dealing with parathesias, which are feelings that are not there. So I always itch. I always have like, it feels like random electric shocks going through my body those kinds of things. And then, you know, lots and lots of other things that kind of come and go as they were. While I was getting diagnosed with MS and dealing with this, I spent a decade as a caregiver to a wife with an advanced cancer. Wow. And yeah, it was, and who was thankfully saved at the last instant, but it didn't save us because we had been through, you know, Going through year upon year upon year of two chronic illnesses together, uh, and, and we were doing this with young children in the house. Our, our kids were young at the time, and I, was, uh, I, I went through a career change, and she went through career challenges, and so we just had a lot that we went through, and then my MS took a really nasty turn, hmm. and she was better. And my wife and my children decided that this was a journey they could no longer share. And so they left. And I was alone. And, and so, yeah, my, my life has been completely turned upside down by MS and by the fact that I didn't handle it well for a long time. And, and the reason is nobody teaches you how to be chronically sick. If we're lucky, we get a little bit of education about how to be a good patient. Well, huh. screw that. And, and yes, I'm happy to be a good patient, but I'm much more interested in living a quality life. This exactly. is the life I have. Yeah, this is, this is the life I have. I, and I can't sit around and wait for somebody to come up with a cure for MS because it probably won't happen in my lifetime. If it does, woohoo, I'm all for it, but I exactly. can't wait. And, and half of all the people in the United States now have at least one chronic health diagnosis. 18% of us have five or more. So 
most of us now are faced with a world that is not adapted for someone who is trying to make their way through it with a chronic health condition. And if we don't have a chronic illness, then we certainly love someone who does. So this affects all of us. It does. And actually, now I'm listening. Yes, I was ignorant to such statistics, statistics myself. And I'm thinking too bad we are not being educated properly how to be more patient and how to care for people with issues like this. Well, and that's my mission in life now, because I, you know, I, I wrote the book, I developed a curriculum, I did because I'd spent, you know, I spent 15 years as a professor, I've been educating people all my life. And I wanted to build the body of knowledge that I wish somebody had given to me exactly. back when I was starting this journey and, and needed it. And so that's what I've spent the last decade of my life devoted to is, is First, understanding that if you actually bother to sit down with people who are living with chronic illness, and I did, I interviewed hundreds, I surveyed thousands, mm -hmm. I got millions of data points. And the thing that, that is striking is that if you look at everything that we're complaining about, everything that is a challenge that we're facing, less than 20% of what's giving us problems are our medical symptoms. Mm -hmm. Most of it is actually mindset and behavior and relationships and environment and dealing with the medical system and, and so forth, right? So it's, it's exactly. social and behavioral and cognitive stuff. Well, that's what I do. That's what I, I study that stuff. So I wanted to build the body of knowledge that would help people understand you are dealing with all of these other things that don't appear on your list of diagnostic medical signs and symptoms. Exactly. And you are completely normal because of that. And, and if you are a caregiver, you are dealing with all of these issues as well. Exactly. And, and nobody, you know, people, people lose sight of caregivers in all of this as well. And, and also professionals within the field. And we, we, we have had over the last couple of years, uh, uh, a, a higher profile in our public discussion about burnout in the medical health, wellness, social support professions, but that's been with us for a long time. And indeed, and nobody talks about that. I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, and, and think about this. Most of those professionals are trained according to an acute care model. Mm -hmm. So that means you go in, you identify a medical problem, you apply a medical solution, and then you send that person back to their previous life. So if that's the model that you go in and fix it and and see the next person, what it is just it a like? Bandaid. Yeah, what it, what is it like to have a career where you're faced with people like me, who will never get better? Exactly. That is, that is extraordinarily stressful. So that's why 
you know, with, with my book and with the curriculum and all that, it's, it's about providing those tools to those crucial populations. Hmm. Where those who would want to read your books, where they can find it? Yeah, if you go to yourlifelivedwell.co, then you can get the links to everything. Wonderful. So the books, social media, all that. You can even download 100 pages free to look at and see if it's something that you mm -hmm. think is going to be useful for you. I'm going to put all of these links of your work and uh, how people can connect with you in the show notes, in the footnotes, sure. so people would be able to. I'm hoping that, that they will take interest to get in touch with you because it's very interesting. Amazing, yes, but it's very knowledgeable and uh, i totally understand i don't have chronic illness from what i know but i was taking care of my mother for a number mm -hmm. of years and she had dementia and uh, i was the only i have brother whom i love dearly but he lives in pennsylvania and i'm in los angeles and yeah my children were helping me but they were young enough at the time so i was the only one with day-to-day -day burnout when i had to work 20 hours i mean 40 hours a week and mm -hmm. all the free time take care of my mother and there was nobody even to give me a vacation at least yeah. for one day so yeah our system yeah it's... adapted to help those who give care as well because mm -hmm. they are getting affected so that's that's very interesting so where did you get your education I'm kind of all over the place. Which yeah, sure, sure. I did my undergraduate at a place called William Jewell College and uh, and then it, at Oxford in England. And then I did my, my master's, my doctorate at the University of Missouri, Columbia. So, you know, I've, I've, except for a, except for time as an undergraduate in England, I have lived in Missouri for all my life, although I love to travel. I've hit 20 or 30 countries now and, and wow. I like to I like to travel. One of my favorites was I, I I once managed to be in St. Petersburg during the White Nights. Wow. And and that was like one of the That's coolest experiences of my yes, entire life. I've been in St. Petersburg once like uh -huh. probably a year before I left because I'm from Republic of Georgia, which used to be back in the day, part of Soviet Union. So yes, I went mm -hmm. there, I've seen the Hermitage and everything. It was amazing experience and white nights. It's off mm -hmm. the chart, it's off the chart good. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. Exactly. I'd love to ask you because it's mind blowing to know that you, didn't get broken by the circumstances of life. Oh, I was pretty. I was. I was pretty broken. I, I was. I was. I think. I think. One of the things we need to do, and I talk about this in the book. I, I introduce this concept of the edge, mm -hmm. and the edge is a ratio. It's a ratio of how much we can deliver. So, what is our capacity? To how much is life demanding of us in that moment? And so if demand's really low and our capacity is high, then we're bored. This may be habit. This is easy for us. As, as our uh, demands increase, as they get close to what our capacity is, 
Now this is starting to trigger our acute stress response, but it's good stress, right? This is you stress, not distress, because we're being challenged. And it's what we call a flow experience, right? And, mm-hmm. and we're, we're really in the zone and we're succeeding. But then if our capacity slips just a little bit below what is demanded of us, now we fail. And this is distress. This is bad stress. And we become overwhelmed. And as that demand increases, 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 it becomes traumatic. And so that's what trauma is. And we can't live at the edge. We have to regularly visit our edges. And edges are are physical and cognitive and emotional and behavioral and social. You know, our relationships have edges as well. But then we've got to pull back to what I call our home. Uh And, And we've got to go back home and we've got to rest and relax and recover and recuperate and sleep and nourish ourselves and grow and, and consolidate. And all of these things, we get, we get our capacities challenged at the edge, but we, can, we don't grow there. We don't recover there. We don't nourish there. And if we never pull back into that safe place where we are kind to ourselves, right? Yes, and and, uh, and we allow ourselves to relax and and rest and disengage, then we we haven't built our capacity up to go back out into the world and engage again. So it's a cycle. Absolutely, and I would, from what you are saying, I'm kind of trying to process it in my mind. Edge. It's something. Like when a young ballerina is trying to stretch her body, she's going mm-hmm. to the point where she cannot stretch any longer. She goes mm-hmm. back, gets her strength, and next time she goes higher and higher. So, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that I found really fascinating, and people may think this is kind of weird, but if you think about it, it makes sense. So I'm, I'm writing for people living with chronic health conditions. And one of the things about chronic health conditions is it forces us to our edges and it keeps us there. Well, interestingly, there's there's a population of people who choose to go to the edge and and to actively work there. And, And these are elite endurance and extreme athletes. And so... I found the, the sports psychology of, of dealing with performance and growth mm-hmm. was really useful because when it comes right down to it, an edge is an edge. Yes. And, and it doesn't matter if it's tiny, small, right in here, close, and kind of humiliating that you don't want to admit to other people that mm-hmm. this is a real challenge for you. Well, that's, that's still an edge. It's still an edge, even if you're not doing something. And this, of course, goes to the third thing that, that people should probably know about me that we haven't gotten to yet. And that is that I am an enthusiastic skydiver. That, and, was, that is my next series of questions. Yes. And, we'll and that, you know, that was for me, that was not about 
just reclaiming a lost childhood dream. It was about, I had come to a place in my life where the thing I was most afraid of was my own body. Uh I I did not trust myself anymore because my body and my brain had betrayed me in so many ways. It was kind of disengaging one with the other. And, uh-huh. and, and so I, I, I had decided, one of the things we don't talk about enough with chronic illness is that it can too easily become this long, slow, sad slide of saying goodbye to the things that we cared about in our lives. Yes. And to our hopes and our dreams. And that's really tragic. And, and I had gotten to that point in my life. Huh. And... Uh, my my career had blown up. My family had blown up. My dog had died. My you know, nothing was was going, and I could no longer see a place from the life I was currently existing in to a life I cared about living. I was lost. I did not see a possible path. And oh that even more interesting, how you got from where you sort of drown yourself to be to where you are now because it's totally opposite yeah it please, was it please, was please but, share that, how you got there but skydiving was crucial for that for me because how, how did you even yeah. get into skydiving well so as a little kid in the 70s i i saw a skydiver at an air show and mm-hmm. i was amazed because back then in the 70s the square parachutes, we call them squares, but they're the rectangular ram air parachutes yeah. that we use now. Those were brand new. Those have been mm-hmm. invented in the 60s. And so you don't just drop out of the sky like you do under the big military rounds. You okay. can fly it like a glider. So okay. this guy came over the airfield, hanging off the strut of a Cessna, let go, opened his parachute, and whizzed around the sky, flew it around, whizzed over us, landed it on target. And I was like, wow, I want to do that. Because remember, this is the Apollo era. And we are all fascinated with everything up in the sky. So I decided, you know, I would start making my own parachutes and and testing them out. I'd climb up as high as I thought I could survive jumping. (laughs) And and I bent myself up pretty good, but I didn't break myself. and, And so... I quickly understood that that I was going to need real gear to do this. Uh, So flash forward to the 90s and I'm a young man in my 20s. I'm working on my doctorate now. I'm in grad school. And I thought I have waited long enough because by this time I had done some climbing Mm -hmm. and I'd enjoyed that. I I, uh, Learned to bungee jump uh, with the Oxford Dangerous Sports Club. Uh, wow. when I was in Oxford, <laughs> and and so I was you know, I was having fun, but it still wasn't high enough. So so I, I did that, and so in the nineties, then uh, I, I I found a club drop zone that was a couple of hours away, mm-hmm. and back then tandem skydives weren't yet a thing, really. They were invented in the 80s, and so some places were doing them, but they hadn't kind of gotten common every place. So 
to learn to skydive, I went in, I did all the training, and then you went up and you did what's called an IED jump. Uh, so I went up in a little Cessna, just like that guy that I saw, climbed out, hanging on the strut, and my instructor's in there saying, okay, you ready? I'm like, yeah. And he takes my pilot chute and throws it out into the relative wind, and it yanks me off the plane, and now I have to land myself. So <laughs> that, that was how I learned, and it was... It, what uh, you felt on your first jump out of the plane with parachute? First jump was just so overwhelming because it is so unlike any experience that you would have would otherwise. Yeah. Because suddenly you look around and literally there is nothing for miles, even straight down. There's nothing. It's just you. You can, you can feel so amazingly alone. But at the same huh. time, you feel so big and so connected because you're looking down there and you can see the world from horizon to horizon. And you see all of the works of humanity. They look like tiny little toys strewn along the ground. And, and that perspective is so radically different. And there's nothing, it's not like being in an airplane because there's not a window in between you and everything else. Your safety net within the airplane. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, so I did that, I got a handful of jumps and it, it soon became evident to me that skydiving is not a hobby, it's a lifestyle choice. And it demands a massive amount of time and commitment and work because it's not just flinging yourself out of a plane. You have to learn how to pilot your body in space. And then you also have to learn how to pilot a parachute. Uh -huh. and, and so there's, there are a lot of skills that are involved to becoming a good skydiver. So education, then career, then family and kids, and then health got in the way. And I, I hit a low point with my MS and I gave up on the idea of ever getting back to skydiving. Mm -hmm. And so I'm alone now and everything has completely blown up. And one thing that my, my teenage son said to me was, dad, you really suck at doing things for yourself. And on the one hand, that was kind of a cheeky teenager thing to say, but on the other hand, it was kind of crushing uh, because yeah. I knew he was right, uh, that somehow I had lost those self-care habits and I was completely defeated by this bad thing struck in my carcass with me that I couldn't get away from. Mm -hmm. and, and so, I said to myself, I'm going to give myself one more chance. Mm -hmm. And literally it was my last chance. I, I said, I am going to recover something that I had given up on. Something that was surprising, something that I didn't think I could do. And, and for me, there was one obvious choice. I, I wanted to 
become a skydiver, a legit skydiver, all the licenses, all the stuff, you know, and, and, and so I, you know, this is 2019 then, and I found a drop zone, you know, I knew that there was a drop zone that was five miles from my house. And for years, I would stare up at the sky, looking over there saying, just right on the other side of the horizon, there are people doing what I wish I was doing. And so I did. I went down there and I started all over. And of course, by this time, you know, I couldn't feel my legs below my knees. And so that was a big challenge. And, and sometimes I have difficulty controlling my limbs. And, and so when I went back, I didn't tell them that I had MS to begin with. Uh-huh. Because I thought... Well, they'll probably just say that's way more trouble than it's worth. Why don't you go try bowling instead? Exactly. Yeah. And and so I knew what I was going to be in for because before I went back, I had 13 jumps. So I knew what the experience was going to be like. And I was pretty confident that I could still do it safely, but mm-hmm. that there was going to be a lot to figure out controlling myself. And so sure enough, it takes... 25 jumps normally to get your A license. That's your first license in skydiving. There are four. It goes to your D license, which you get at 500 jumps. So there are about, uh, there's over a hundred things that you have to check off on your reference card for your A license. So there are a lot of skills that you Mm -hmm. have to Mm -hmm. demonstrate. And well, most people do that in 25 jumps, it took me 47. And I did, I had, I had some of my instructors who had done thousands of jumps and, and had been doing this for a long time, tell me that was the most terrifying skydive I've ever been on with you. Because mm-hmm. I was having trouble controlling my legs. And then and finally they asked me, what's the matter with your legs? Why, why, why are you having so much trouble? doing this and then I told them well I can't feel them and they were like did you get hurt and I was like no it's MS and and so I explained it but by that time they knew that even if I was spinning wildly out of control every single time I always stayed altitude aware and managed to stabilize myself and open my own parachute on time and so Mm -hmm. that's like the minimum for being safe on the skydive Mm -hmm. So I figured, okay, so we did lots of extra work on the ground. I went to vertical wind tunnels so that I could do the indoor skydiving because I would have an instructor right there on my leg, holding it in place saying, this is exactly where it needs to be. And even though I couldn't feel like the wind on my shins, I could feel the tension in the tendons behind my knees. So I learned to understand what my legs were doing by the sensations I could get. Uh-huh. So we did that. And in 2019, I got my A license and my B license and logged about 140 jumps. And then in 2020, I said, okay, I'm going to set myself a, a bigger goal. Okay. I am going to become a serious skydiver. And what that means is kind of the minimum for being a serious skydiver is getting past 500 jumps, earning your licenses, and getting some kind of professional rating. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew at the beginning of 2020 to, to make that goal by the end of the year, I was going to have to log better than 
one jump a day for an entire year. And so I logged 370 jumps and earned my coach rating along the way so I can help teach people now. And, and I, am I a great skydiver? No, I will never be a great skydiver. I'm a middle-aged guy with a neurodegenerative condition. However, I'm a safe skydiver. I can help other people and, and contribute to this drop zone community, you know, my sky family in, and, and they have given so much to me and, and I want to be a contributing member there as well. So I can be a serious skydiver. And, and that was my goal and I managed it. I would like to jump in for a second and say sure. that I'd like you to look at yourself even from a little slightly different angle. What you're saying right now, when you can't feel your legs and you know how it feels like tendons and different sensations help you understand what you naturally can't, that just shows to other people not to ever give up on themselves. If you yeah. can do that, maybe there would be somebody else, even at least one person you can help who would be having MS. That would be wonderful. I think one really important thing is, you know, I said earlier, chronic illness sometimes pushes up us to an edge and, and keeps us there. And I find that the only thing we learn from that is that we can't do that thing in the way we used to do it. That's an invitation to be creative. And, and so I think that life with a chronic illness or life with chronic distress, life with chronic pain is an invitation for us to become more creative and to say, there are different ways to get to the same place that we want to get to, or there are different goals that may give us some of the same experiences that we are valuing. It's absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. And we're kind of reaching right now to the point where I would have to stop. But I definitely would want you to be back because we're far from over. Well, it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's kind of a, 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 an unusual jaw-dropping story in some ways. But for me, I, I guess there's, there's one final thought maybe that I, I, I can throw out there for Please people. Please do. For me, becoming a skydiver was about facing my fear, but it wasn't about facing the fear of heights. It was about facing the fear of my own body because uh -huh. for me, see, there's, a, there's a, a point in every skydive where, so when we go out of the plane, then the clock starts on the end of our lives, okay? If we do yes. nothing, then we're gonna impact the earth and the earth is gonna win every time. And, and so 
when I exit an airplane, usually it's about 14,000 feet that we go out. And at 14,000 feet, my life expectancy is now 82 seconds. And so a little voice in my head as I go through that door says 82 seconds. And it, it is in the sense of the Stoics, you know, a, it is a memento mori. It is a reminder that death is always present, but because death is always present, we must seize life. And so that's the reason why, if you looked at the cover of my book, that picture that's on the cover of my book, mm -hmm. it took us eight jumps over six weeks to get that image because that's exactly the image I wanted. And yes, it looks all beautiful at sunset there and everything, but when that picture was taken, I was 5,000 feet above the earth, headed to the earth at 120 miles an hour. That's 27 seconds from impact. And what I'm doing is I've got my hands up to my forehead and I'm just about to sweep them out in this wide gesture. Mm -hmm. Among skydivers, that's called the wave off. And the wave off is where as a skydiver, I'm telling everybody else in my airspace, I'm warning them, I am about to take action to save myself because I wave off and I deploy my parachute. And, mm -hmm. and that is the thing because the goal of every skydive is to be able to do another skydive. So, so at, in every skydive, you have to actively decide to save yourself. You have to choose life. And how, how often in our day-to-day -day lives do we actively have to choose life? Well, I would argue we should put ourselves in the frame of mind that we are doing that all the time. But so, are we? Yeah, but we are not. So, so for me, putting myself in the position where I had to actively save myself every day for a year on average, because sometimes, you know, the weather's not good, so I have to make it up. But to do that every time, that's what I needed to give myself the confidence to finish the book and build the company and do all the other stuff that I've done. Absolutely incredible. I was taking little notes here. I know that I will re listen it again, but I was just taking little notes and the way you're saying that death is always present and that's why we must to seize the life. That should be written in front of our faces every day to live better quality life instead of we need to live life instead of being existing in it and swimming along the way. It's, it's a very stoic idea, but I, I think it's, it's a crucially important one. And, and, Definitely. and even if you are living with something like a chronic illness, that's just your motivation to get a little more creative with it. Exactly. And that's not to say that I don't have down days just like everybody else. Of course you I didn't do. like solve all my problems and, and now it's, you know, this is an ongoing challenge every day for the rest of my life. But that's okay because 
for me, I did a thing that allowed me to demonstrate to myself that I've got this, even though I felt like I did not. Well, you've got it the best way you can, and it shows. I'm absolutely in awe of what you shared with me, and I would be able to share it with the listeners. It's an incredible story. It's an amazing experience. It's giving me, actually, quite a few ideas how to probably not just restructure my life, but because, well, we can talk about it off the record in a minute, but there were so many things in my life where people were just expecting me just to go with the flow because mm-hmm. I was not expected to do this or that or whatever. And then they are saying, why are you doing so many things? Why, are, why don't you concentrate on your websites? because I'm a web designer by trade. Mm-hmm. But that's not, the, I have thrill of talking to people and helping people to get the message to help others, mm-hmm. get motivated a little more. And you by far this year, the best guest I've ever had. And I absolutely intend to build a friendship with you and have you as a guest quite more often for the time to come. Absolutely. Well, you are very kind. Thank you. Thank you so much. With this, we're not done talking, but with this, I'm wrapping up this episode. Thank you so much for sharing with us your journey. I have been delighted. Thank you. That's it. It's time to wrap up another episode. You can find any of your favorite episodes anywhere where you are listening to your podcasts. Google, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Could you possibly do me a favor and leave a review there to help other amazing people like yourself to find my podcast faster? If you got a question, suggestion, or just want to say hello, please find me on Instagram at underscore Tatiana Davidoff. Until next episode, stay safe, motivated, peaceful, happy. Bye-bye.